Uh, so our reading is going to be from John 21, 4 to 19, but James is going to um, bring an alternative uh, reading of the Bible for us if you want to listen on. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but none of the disciples realised that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there, with some fish and some bread. Jesus said, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish. 153. But even with so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew. It was the Lord. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He answered, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and will lead you where you do not want to go. Said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. Opportunity. Seize everything you ever wanted. One moment. Did you capture? Just 
let him slip. Yo. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous. But on the surface, he looks calm and ready to drop palms. But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. The whole crowd goes so loud. He opens his mouth, but the words won't come out. He's choking how? Everybody's choking now. The clock's run out. Time's up. Over. Loud. Snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Oh, there goes gravity. He's choked. He's so mad, but he won't give up. Daddy's he know he won't have it. He knows his whole back's that he's rough. It don't matter. He's choked. He knows that, but he's broke. He's so sad that he knows when he goes back to this mobile home. featured in? Does anyone know the answer to that question? Yes, over there. Eight Mile. Eight Mile came out in 2002. Uh, the movie is all about second chances, isn't it? It's actually a semi-autobiographical movie. Eminem's character grew up in white trash America, living in a trailer park. He's got this incredible talent for rap, but would, when, you know, when it comes down to the crunch, he would always choke. Then he gets a second chance. And it's not just at stardom, I mean, that's one thing, but he gets a chance to get out of the hole he grew up in. A chance to do something with his life. A chance to provide for his young daughter. A chance not to feel ashamed anymore. Now, we all know that kind of familiar story. The storyline of, uh, of redemption. The storyline about second chances. I spoke last week uh, about how Tolkien made an observation about uh, fairy stories. And really, this is another narrative stream that runs through a lot of our movies and, 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 and fiction, isn't it? Redemption, second chances. Uh, and I think it's because, again, we've got something that echoes in the human psyche. We all want to think about having second chances. Because this one's personal, isn't it? This narrative stream. Maybe for the whole heroism thing last week, you didn't relate as well for those who are here. But I reckon for this one, we will all echo with this idea of second chances, of redemption. I look at my own life. And if I'm honest with myself, I know I've failed in more ways than I care to admit. But probably you too. Maybe most immediate to, to a lot of you at your life stage, maybe you feel like you failed your parents. You failed theirs or your expectations. You, you failed some hopes that you've had. Maybe you failed some of the dreams that are now very hard to realise. Maybe you failed yourself, your, your moral standards, things that you thought you would never do, you've done. Maybe if you come from a Christian or even a religious background, you really feel the weight of having failed God. And so the idea that we can have a fresh start, the idea that you can have a clean slate, the idea that you can turn over a new leaf, this is enormously attractive. Now at the end of John's Gospel, we see exactly that, don't we? We're going to continue 
the Easter series. I started last week. I, I looked at a different gospel, but this time we're looking at John's gospel, John's account of Jesus' life. And I want to look at the Easter events, remember, through the eyes of just one character. And it's the same character as the one last week. It's the apostle or the disciple Peter. You remember we looked uh, last week we looked at the, 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 the Gospel of Mark, but Peter is the chief disciple. He's rough and he's tough and he's loyal and he's impulsive and he tries to be a hero. He says, I will never abandon you, Jesus. But then it came to the crunch and he chokes. And he not just chokes, but he fails spectacularly. Remember, not once, not twice, but three times. He denies under pressure, he denies, he even knows Jesus. He not just denies, but he actually adds the weight of an oath. Alright? We saw last week, he swore vehemently that he didn't even know Jesus. And Luke's account, which we didn't look at, but Luke was another... Uh, writer, uh, biographer of Jesus' life. Luke's account is especially poignant. We didn't see this, but in Luke's account, he says that at the point of his denial, his third denial, Luke records that Jesus looks straight at Peter. And then Peter realises and goes out and weeps bitterly. How poignant that must have been. And I wonder, friends, if you've been in that situation. Have you ever done or said something that you regret so, so profoundly? And you can't help but keep playing it over and over again in your mind. And in fact, the funny thing is, I don't know if you've experienced this, as you think back to what you did or said, it's almost as if it was an out-of-body experience, because you can't believe you did it. And you said to yourself and said to others, that that wasn't me. It was almost like, that wasn't me. I can't believe I did that. And so you know what Peter would have felt when he's recorded as weeping bitterly, the bitterness the regret, the ache that comes right from the heart. See, Peter's character, I think, again, is there to represent all of us at this point. He needed a second chance so desperately, didn't he? Just like we do. And here's the great news, because at the end of John's account of Jesus, Peter gets just that. As we go through it, you'll find it's not just a second chance for him. In fact, it's not even just a second chance for us, as great as that is. Something far greater stands behind all of it. This second chance, we will see, will open a door to a life so meaningful, so profound, so heroic, that it will be a life worth dying for. How so? Because it all has to do with the events of the first Easter. It all has to do with Jesus' resurrection. So I've got three short points about second chances. Firstly, Peter's second chance. Secondly, the world's second chance. Thirdly, our second chance. So let's go. Let's have a look at Peter's second chance. This whole narrative is set up so you can't miss just how this is that, what we're talking about today, the second chance. Um, it's full of deja vu moments, very deliberate deja vu moments. You know what a deja vu is when you're kind of there and you think, oh, I've seen this before, I've been here before. And if you've seen the movie The Matrix, I know that's going back a long way too, then you'll know that uh, you know, deja vus are not insignificant because it's, it's a glitch in The Matrix. Um, but uh, there are real deliberate deja vus here. There are four in this short little bit that uh, James dramatically read out for us. But if you have copies of the Bible open uh, in John 21, you might, might, you might notice them. Four things, I'll start with F. There's fishing, there's fire, there's feeding, and there's following. Firstly, the deja vu of fishing. Okay, the scene opens, and Peter and his friends are fishing all night. They don't catch anything. 
I mean, even here you get a sense of, of, of disappointment. There's, there's, there's got to be some disillusionment setting in because he's so full of regret, he's feeling so unworthy that he's totally given up trying to be a hero. He's actually given up trying to be a disciple. He's gone back to his old job because that's what he used to do. He was a fisherman. But they stay up all night, they catch nothing. But then the risen Jesus, this is after the events of the crucifixion, this is the risen Jesus. He comes in the morning and then he tells them to drop their nets. At that time they don't know it's him. But they drop their nets and lo and behold, 153 fish. Now this is a deja vu moment, if there ever was one. Because if you know the story, when Peter and Jesus first meet, Jesus calls Peter while he's fishing and he tells Peter to leave his net. And then he says to Peter, I will make you fishers of men, of people. Alright? That was what happened a few years ago when it, the whole journey between Peter and Jesus started. Now, of course, for Peter, it couldn't be further from his mind. After his failure, he's disappointed, he's disillusioned. I mean, how could he continue that calling? How could he keep doing what he'd done for the last three years. That's why he's gone back to his old job. Because he couldn't even stand up for his master. Of course he couldn't follow him. But then Jesus appears. And he helps them to catch a boatload of fish, which I think is symbolic as well. Catching fish, catching people, it's the same part of, this, part of the same imagery. But the symbolism is, is, is more than that. It's, it's, well, he's back now. And because he's back, he wants Peter back on task. And no matter what you've done, Peter, I want you back on task. I'm going to help you catch, not just fish, but really catch people like I called you to. Jesus is doing that all over again. He's calling Peter again. And no wonder when Peter finally realises, hey, that's Jesus. What does he do? He's the first to throw caution to the wind, dignity to the wind. He pulls his coat over him and he jumps in the water. He can't wait to get to shore. Imagine his heart would have been bursting with all the things he wanted to say. So that's the first deja vu. Right? The fishing. Secondly, fire. No small detail that at breakfast they're sitting around, sitting around a, a, a fire made out of hot coals. Now the thing to note about the, uh, the, the conversation is that Jesus initiates all of the conversation. He does all of the speaking in fact. Now at this point you, you've got to understand a little bit about how great that must have been for Peter. I mean, he, yes, again, he would have had so many things he wanted to say, but you're in the position of Peter and you've got so many regrets and this is the guy you betrayed and you'd have a thousand things you want to say but no words to say, yeah? You've ever been in that situation? You've let someone down so much you don't even know how to initiate the conversation. You don't even know how to say sorry. But so he's feeling conflicted. He's just delighted that Jesus is there but he's feeling awful because of what he did. But then Peter doesn't have to speak. Because Jesus speaks for him. Jesus is not only not bitter, right? he initiates a conversation. He gets things going. He allows Peter off the hook. But then the other thing is, it's around a fire. And that is quite a deja vu. Why is fire important? Well, if you were here last week, or even if you're not and you know the story, where was Peter when he denied Jesus? He was standing in the courtyard warming himself around the fire. Now, this is a deliberate deja vu. The second chance is going to mirror his failure. Thirdly, a feeding deja vu. 
The next curious exchange, Jesus, as, as you heard earlier, asks Peter, Do you love me? And then says, Feed my sheep. The sheep are obviously symbolic, uh, representative of the people of God, or the church, if you like. Now, what's curious about this exchange is that it almost seems like, and you might have felt that when it was read earlier, it's like, Jesus, why are you hounding Peter? I mean, he loves you, okay? Don't you get it? He loves you, but Jesus asks him again, and again, he says, feed my sheep, again, and again, and, and Peter gets a bit hurt, and we probably feel a bit hurt for Peter. I mean, come on, Jesus. Don't you get I do love you. It does seem odd until you remember how many times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Three times. Why three times? Because Peter denied him three times. See, this isn't a cruel uh, ploy on Jesus' part to make Peter feel bad. Uh, He's trying to reassure Peter that just as many times as he might have denied his master, he now gets just as many times to reaffirm his love for his master. This is full restoration being offered. No accident that Jesus asked him three times. Last deja vu, right? So we've had the fishing, the fire, the feeding. The last one is following. Because last of all, Jesus tells Peter, and he tells him twice, follow me. And this is the most obvious fresh start, the most obvious second chance. Jesus is saying, look, the past is done away with. Your failures don't hold you back anymore. Come, this is your second chance. Come, follow me. Let's start over. And in case we miss it, John reminds us just how far Peter would one day go in following Jesus. Have a look there on the screen, but we read it earlier. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. What's he talking about here? Well, church tradition tells us that 30 30 or so years later, under Emperor Nero and that terrible time of persecution, Peter was arrested and sentenced to death. And of all deaths, he was sentenced to also die by crucifixion. But tradition tells us that when it comes to the point of death, he requests to be crucified upside down. Which you can imagine would have been even more painful and shameful. And the reason why he requested that is because he didn't feel like the man who denied his Lord three times deserved, was worthy of dying in the same way as his Lord. He asked to be crucified upside down. That's how far he went in following Jesus. But you see, if you trace Peter's life all the way to his death, you see that this is much more than just a fresh start, yeah? This has got to be more than a second chance. Something happened here that morning that was so momentous that changed everything. Because if you've been following Peter's story, especially if you were here last week, he was the self-made hero who became a zero. But then he actually does turn out to be a hero. How does that transformation happen? How does the one who chickened out to save his own life, how does he now have a life that he would willingly throw away? What's happened here? And I want to suggest to you that something much more has happened than just, well, Peter, you're forgiven. Here's your second chance. This is much more than just the uh, New Testament version of 8 Mile with Eminem. So what is it? What's going on here? Well, 
The movie came out again, I know, a long time ago. Called Saving Private Ryan. If you don't know the story, Private Ryan, Matt Damon, uh, his brothers, I think three of them, were all killed during World War II. And as a PR exercise, the US government decides, well, this last Ryan couldn't also be killed. So, right, they decided, well, we've got to get him home, get him home to his mum. But the problem is, he, he was a paratrooper. And he, he goes into German-occupied France be, the, you know, the day before D-Day invasion. And he's lost somewhere. They have no idea where he is. And so what they do is they send a small platoon led by Tom Hanks' character. They send a small platoon to go and save him. And they risk their lives, all of them, to save this one measly little private Ryan. Now, through the course of the rescue mission, it's a great movie, by the way, Steven Spielberg, if you're a movie buff, you have to see it. But anyway, through the course of the rescue mission, this platoon pretty much all dies. I think with the exception of one or two, right? Sorry, I'm just giving it away. But you know what's going to happen. Come on! Right? Yeah. All those lives lost for just one guy. And so Tom Hanks, I'm going to give away more. Tom Hanks, <laughs> as he's dead, dying. <laughs> sorry, I'm really sorry. Tom Hanks, as he lays dying, he looks Ryan in the eye, Matt Damon's character, and he says these words. He says, earn this. So he says, he says, earn this. And the last scene of the movie, you've got an elderly uh, private Ryan, he's now an old guy and he's like a great-grandfather, and he's there with his family and he is at Hanks' character's uh, gravestone. And he says, with tears in his eyes, he says, I've lived a good life. I've done my best. I've tried with everything I've done to earn what you've done for me. I've tried to earn it. Now, some people think that perhaps this is what was going on in the psyche of Peter and other Christian martyrs. Incidentally, of the twelve apostles, all but one of them get executed for their faith and the remaining one, John, dies in exile on a lonely island. So is that what's going on? Christian heroes are simply doing a private riot. They feel indebted because of Jesus' sacrifice, their martyrdom and heroism is a chance for them to earn what Jesus did for them. Is that what's going on? And maybe that's what you think, even if you're a Christian. This is what, what Christian life is about. Jesus died for me, I've got to pay him back. You know what that's called? That's called a debtor's ethic. You're in debt to someone, you're trying to pay them back. Is that what's going on, a debtor's ethic? Well, I want to suggest that that's not a good enough explanation. I want to suggest that something was much more powerful as a motivating force than a simple debtor's ethic. How you can make a zero into a hero. And the motivating force, probably no surprise to you, I'm going to argue, is the resurrection of Jesus. So here it is. The resurrection of Jesus is not just a second chance for individuals, good as that is. It's a second chance for the world. That's the second thing I wanted to talk about. Peter's second chance was the first one. The world's second chance is the second one. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day believed, and they believed rightly, that one day God would completely restore the fallen world. So all that's been lost, right? All that's been lost in those terrible S words like sin and sickness and suffering and sadness, all of that would be made untrue one day. That's what the Jews believed. And that's what the Old Testament Bibles taught. The prophet Isaiah speaks of a new creation, 
a new cosmos, a new world, a new universe, the world would get a second chance. That was the future that they longed for. But you see, in their mind, it was something yet to happen. And it only happened at the end of human history. Right? When one order ends cataclysmically, the new order would come and begin. That's how they saw it, but it lay in the future. But then what changed was Jesus came. And in that first Good Friday when Jesus dies, and associated with his death on the cross are cataclysmic signs that accompany prophecies about the end of the world. Right? The darkness and the, the temple being torn in, the, the veil of the temple being torn into, all those kind of things. Suddenly you get a glimpse on the cross that somehow the end has come already, but it's come in the middle of history. But that's not it. Because at the Easter Sunday, three days later, he comes out of the tomb. But he comes out differently to how he went in. He comes out and his body, according to the accounts, is not the old flesh and blood, but the new flesh and blood, the new flesh and blood, the new stuff that belongs in the age of resurrection. The new body that belongs to that new cosmos, the new creation, the new world order that they expected. But again, this is not something in the future. This has happened now in the middle of history. Now, once you realize the link between Jesus' resurrection and the world's second chance, something clicks for you. And I reckon this is what clicked for Peter that morning. When they met the risen Jesus, they realized this isn't just my second chance. They realized this is the second chance for the universe that we have all been hungry for. And it's come now. It's been dragged from the future into the present. The risen Jesus is the first of that new creation, of the new world order. And so the second chance for the universe has now begun. That's what they saw. The future has invaded the present. And one day, that which began with just one man, Jesus, would swallow up the darkness and transform it completely until the universe itself gets remade. That I want to argue, is what the early Christians believed happened when Jesus walked out of the tomb. You see, here, much more than the debtor's ethic, much more than simple, simply the second chance for you and me, here's the event that explains everything. It explains why Peter would be so utterly transformed, he would be willing to die for Jesus. It explains why a group of frightened fishermen would become the force called the church that would one day, in less than three centuries, take over the Roman world without ever raising an army or fighting a war up to that point. Then, in fact, the emperor, so it said, converted himself. You see, at Easter, God was signalling that the second chance for the universe had already begun. Sin, sickness, suffering, sadness, they would no longer have the last word. Why? Because Jesus is alive and with that, the certainty of God's future world order had come. So lastly, our second chance. See, the question now turns to us. Two questions really, and these are the questions that I want to challenge you to think about. Firstly, do you need a second chance? Do you need a second chance? Like Peter, do you have regrets? too heavy for you to carry. Some of you here will be so aware of this that I don't have to remind you. But probably a whole lot of us, perhaps, aren't as aware 
we don't feel much regret. We don't look back on our lives. And in fact, we go by the model. The motto is not about regrets. It's just about moving forward. And I want to say that's great. Great for you. But perhaps it's because, or can I be honest? Could be because we haven't lived long enough. See, I reckon life is like that when you're in your 20s, late teens. You don't have that much to regret, really. Some of you do. Most of you don't. You live long enough. You drag that out over decades. You talk to old people at nursing homes. You talk to your grandparents, your great-grandparents. The regrets really start piling up. But I reckon we also need to go deeper because regardless of whether you feel subjectively feel guilt or regret, God does want us all to know that objectively we all have a burden too great for us to bear, too great for us to deal with. Objectively, our rejection and denial of God, like I talked about last week, in a sense Peter mirrors all of us. It was so serious, so objectively serious, that God had to objectively and publicly send His Son Jesus to die on a cross, a lonely cross to deal with. That's how serious God takes our failures. As I said last week, Peter's denial is symbolic of the human race's denial and rejection of Jesus. And Again, whether we feel it or not, whether we are burdened by guilty feelings or not, the Bible says this is objectively true. It says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But the great news of Easter, I want to remind you, is that we all get that second chance. Jesus died Good Friday to definitively deal with our guilt and punishment. It's done. He says it's finished. And have you ever wondered, if you may not know, why Good Friday is good, not bad? Why is Good Friday good? Even though, arguably, the, one of the greatest injustices was carried out on the first Good Friday, it was good because Jesus went willingly as our substitute lamb of sacrifice and scapegoat, as I talked about last week. And because he went, it was good for us. But more than that, we, like Peter, we can meet the risen Jesus today. And if you meet him, and if you know him, and if you're in a relationship with him, he reassures you that just as sin and death and punishment wasn't the last word for him, so it will never be with those who follow him. Guys, your past can be wiped clean. My past can be wiped clean. With Him, we not only have a second chance. In fact, second is almost not enough if you live long enough. I don't want a second chance. I want infinite chances. Right? So many things I've done and done and done and redone and I just need more than a second chance. Well, you know, good news. Because Jesus lives and out of His infinite, eternal life, He lives. Out of that same life, He gives us infinite chances. That is great news because he is risen. So that was the first question. Do you need a second chance? But the second question is this. Do you have a life worth dying for? I reckon if there's, some, if there's nothing in your life that you would die for, then probably there's nothing in your life truly worth living for either. So do you have a life worth dying for? Because the resurrection of Jesus, as I said, is not only personal but cosmic. The cosmos has been given a second chance. Jesus' resurrection proves it. So for those who are His, you now have something far greater to live for. It's the promised new age. God is making all things new. This life ain't it. My story, your story, can be part of a greater story. 
It's the restoration and renewal of a broken, broken, broken world. And when you are a part of that, you have a life worth living. So worthwhile that it's worth dying for. And why is it worth dying for? Because it's a life that's not even death, not persecution, not suffering, not martyrdom, not execution, not crucifixion, right way up or upside down, can take away. Let me tell you about a guy called Jim Elliott. As a university student, your age, he decided that he would pursue something more than what everyone else around him pursued. So he graduated, got married, and as a young 25-year-old, he heads to the Ecuadorian jungles in South America as a missionary. Four years later, 29, he and his three other companions were killed, speared to death by the very people he was trying to love and share the message of Jesus with. He left behind a young wife and a daughter. Now many would call that a waste. Foolish. I mean heroic maybe, but foolish. But he wouldn't have. How do we know that? Well, around the time he graduated from uni, he wrote in the journal, his journal, a copy of his journal, these words. He wrote this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The challenge today is, in light of Jesus' resurrection, do a trade. What I mean? You see, if Jesus is alive and the Bible is true, then maybe we've got life all wrong. Just maybe. Because we're told to live and build our lives and centre it around, quite frankly, the things that can't last. Work, career, relationships, sex, money, travel, pleasure. Now these are all good things in and of themselves. But we're told to make life be about those things, centred around those things. But here's the thing, if Jesus is alive, then there is a life that you can't lose. But it's not in those things which come and go. It's in Him. It's found in following Him, living for Him, loving Him, enjoying Him. And that's the trade He wants us to make this Easter. Trade what you cannot keep anyway for the life that you can never lose. Live for Him and live for something far bigger. What motivated Peter and his fellow disciples to die as heroes wasn't a death of ethic. Oh no. It was the joy of participating in the resurrected life to come. The life that started when Jesus walked out of that tomb. The first Easter. And if those events are true... And yesterday you would have heard Marty Kemp talk about the reliability historically of those events. And I hope you're considering, because if these events are true, then that's a choice you've got to make, isn't it? Do I keep centering my life around that which cannot last and ultimately that which cannot satisfy? Or do I centre my life around the risen one who with him brings an age that starts the moment I decide to follow him and will last for all eternity, that which I can never lose. If you're here today and you still don't know where you stand with this message, with this decision, well, my challenge to you is not necessarily today to make that decision. You may not be ready to do that, but James is going to get up and tell us about courses, or well, one particular course that the EU runs, 
can I just urge you to make a decision while you're at university, while you've got the time, while EU is here, to at least investigate. But perhaps you are ready, and if you are ready, then would you talk to a Christian friend of yours and say, hey, look, quite frankly, this Easter, I, I think my objections are all gone. I would like to know how I might start following Jesus. And I'm sure your Christian friend, or not them, but some of the uh, students who help run you, would love to talk to you about that. Come and see me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about that. But please, if Easter is true, it's not something we can leave. It's not something we can ignore, is it? Alright, thanks for uh, listening. We've got questions and the number there, but I'll hand it over to James. Uh, first question is, uh, how can we earn the Lord's love after we've denied him in a time where there might be even more opportunities to, den- to deny Jesus? How can we earn the Lord's love after we've denied him in a time where there might be even more opportunities to deny Jesus? I'm not sure what that means, especially the second half. Opportunities where there might be... What, the time where there might be more opportunities to deny Jesus? Do you, I don't know if you... I know it's anonymous, but if you want to clarify... Yeah. Perhaps um, come see Peter after to... Um, I mean, look, just really quickly. Um, firstly, you don't have to earn the Lord's love. Secondly, he offers infinite chances. And I just want to remind you, whoever you are, of that, that, uh, that there is a fresh start and a clean slate. Um, but yeah, please do come and see me afterwards if you want to clarify the, the question. Uh, second question. Um, Christians get heaps of second chances. That's great. Uh, but does that change anything in our life? Does anything need to change? And if so, why? Uh, yep. We do get heaps of second chances and that is great. Uh, does that change anything in our lives? I think it does uh, profoundly. Um, in, a, in a sense, you could argue that every single one of the, uh, the, the, the martyrs that I mentioned, and I just mentioned 12 of them, but Peter in particular, something does happen you know, when you get a second chance. And it's not just a second chance, but you get to be in relationship with the person that uh, offers you that second chance, and he's with you the whole time because he's risen. Um, that, that changes you profoundly. I mean, it, it, it's not like you never fail him again, but uh, because he shows you so much love and grace and you have that much security from your relationship with him, that um, it, it, it just softens you. Your heart softens. And, and uh, you, you do things and you change in ways that you couldn't have imagined you could. Um, and I guess, you know, it, it's going to be a bit tricky at this point because the, the, the examples I would give are going to be uh, look, look around at some, some genuine Christians you might know. Um, I think Christians will be the first to say, hey, I need second chance, I need lots of chances. But if you know some Christians, um, and while they would say they're not perfect, I hope you can see that they're, they're, they're different. There's something about them. Something that they live for. There's something about even as they seek second chances that they are really uh, changing for the better. And I think that's a good witness and testimony to how this kind of idea of second chance actually does in the end change you as well. Thanks, Peter. Um, could you possibly exp- explain on your comments um, of Jesus being more than just a debtor's et- ethic? Yeah, um, quite simply, I think a debtor's ethic is about trying to repay someone's favour to you. Um, uh, and I think, again, like, I, I think there's a, there's a, for, for a lot of my Christian life, I think that's how I operated. Jesus, you did all this for me, how can I pay you back? You know, just feel really... Uh, I mean, you feel gratitude, but I think you also feel bad that... that, that 
so much love has been shown to you when you don't deserve it, and especially if you've done something um, wrong. Um, I can tell you that a debtor's ethic just generally doesn't work in life. Like, I'm married, and, and if, 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 if the reason why I loved my wife and did nice things to her is because I always felt indebted to her, I don't think it'd be a very good marriage. And you see, ultimately, Jesus is calling us not to a debtor's ethic because he's calling us to a genuine relationship of love. And just as my marriage would not be able to flourish with a debtor's ethic either way, so neither does God want a debtor's ethic when it comes to us. He does give us lots of grace and favour. He does forgive us. But it's much more than just that. He doesn't want us to feel bad for the rest of our lives. He wants us to know that, hey, we're no longer slaves. We're sons and daughters of the King. That we, because of Him, are favoured and loved for all eternity. He gives us a security and a love and a relationship that's far deeper and more wonderful than a, than a debtor's ethic can bring about. We've got a time for a few more questions. Um, if we get infinite chances... Why are we told to confess our sins or ask for forgiveness whenever we pray? Isn't it enough to ask for these things just once? Uh, yeah, again, I think once you put our relationship with God in the context of, of a, a, a close, intimate, loving relationship. So, marriage is the closest one I know. Um, with my marriage, I know, uh, I know that my wife loves me. She's put up with a heck of a lot. Um, and I know that no matter what I did, and because part of marriage is that she promised, and I promised that through thick and thin, you know, whatever, we would still love each other. I know that's not unbreakable in human marriages, but for God that is unbreakable. Having said that, though, there are going to be times in our marriage when I have offended her. Alright? And though in principle I know that she's, she forgives me, it doesn't account for the real relationship breach that does happen. She's not going to divorce me because I've made a mistake, no matter what that is. But the relationship reaches there and I need to come and say, honey, I'm sorry. And then there's reconciliation and then there's intimacy. In a small way, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think our relationship with God is a little bit like that. Yes, nothing you can, if you are a Christian, you're a child of God, nothing you can do can, can take you outside of that. Right? God is not going to break covenant with you. But there is real relationship breach when we sin. And so, but then you've got a God who's, you know, not as good as my wife is. Our God is much better than my wife. He is so willing to forgive us. Nothing will stand in that way. What, you know, but the relationship breach does need to be addressed. And the best thing we can do is quickly and confidently confess and experience the joy of reconciliation. All right? Now, if you don't, it doesn't mean that you don't uh, have a relationship with God anymore. But it does affect your intimacy, doesn't it? I mean, that's why God calls us to confess and repent.